The last time I was in this chapel was to preach a preaching class. Don Demeray was my preaching professor. That was just about as intimidating as this is today. Um, as I'm sure you have heard, you know, this year, uh, 2018, is the first in decades. Uh, I actually read in a couple places that it's been 73 years since uh, Valentine's Day has fallen on the same day as Ash Wednesday, and that Easter has fallen on April Fool's Day, April 1st. Um, now, among the naysayers of our, our faith, I'm sure the idea of an April Fool's Day Easter provides a lot of ammunition for ridicule. Uh, and of course, there has already been much written about Valentine's Day falling on Ash Wednesday, tomorrow. How this, this, this confluence of days is going uh, to provide the world around us with glimpses of lovers out on Valentine's dates, gazing romantically at the crosses marked on each other's foreheads <laughs> instead of into their eyes. Um, I've read, too, how uh, for the more stringent faithful in certain traditions, this date clash is already provoking the tragic conundrum of what do I do? Do I fast or do I eat my chocolate tomorrow? Uh, seriously, this is a big topic of discussion. Uh, in looking for how that question is being answered, I was amused by the way Ned McGrath, the communications director of the Archdiocese of Detroit, responded. He writes this, he said, I have no reason to doubt the ability of my fellow Catholics to multitask. <laughs> Now, how does a person multitask eating, whether chocolate or anything else, and fasting? I'm not sure about that. To me, it would seem that those two things, especially eating and, and fasting, are, are just about the definition of mutually exclusive. Uh, typically, eating and fasting just don't go together. But then again, I thought about it some more, and I thought, well, you know, maybe Mr. McGrath is onto something here. Uh, for this year, at least, because there are a lot of things about the collision of Easter and April Fool's Day that on the surface may not seem to go together, but then in other ways, you know, maybe they do. And the same is true for Ash Wednesday and for Valentine's Day. Now, on the surface of it, the, the symbols of tomorrow, the, the ash black cross and the joyful red heart might seem to, to rather crash into one another. Um, but on the other hand, maybe they fit together better than we think. Uh, we see the collision of symbols that I'm talking about, I think here in Hebrews 12, verse 2, where the writer makes the statement, Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Now, you know, I have... Uh, I've heard a lot of sermons on Hebrews chapter 12, and I'll bet you have too. Uh, I've heard sermons on the great cloud of witnesses. I've heard sermons on the need to throw off everything that hinders us. Uh, I've heard sermons on running the race with perseverance, on the need to fix our eyes on Jesus as we run. I've heard sermons on enduring hardship as discipline and a dozen other things from this tremendous chapter of, of Scripture. But in considering this passage this past week, 
I realize that I have never heard a sermon on the joy involved in Jesus enduring the cross. And maybe, maybe 20 or so minutes from now, I'll have yet to hear a sermon on this. But uh, we'll hope that's not the case. Okay. Now again, on the surface of things, it seems to me that if ever there were two elements that didn't belong in the same sentence, they would be joy and cross. Especially in Jesus' day, you know. Uh, that first word there, kara, means a deep-seated gladness. Uh, an extreme delight. And of course, uh, it's translated joy more than anything else. Uh, it's used in places in scripture like, uh, well, in Acts, in Acts 12. You remember when God sent the angel to release Peter from, from prison. He does that, and it takes a while for Peter to realize that, that he's not dreaming. But, but once he does realize that this is really happening, he makes his way through the city, and he knocks on the door of John Mark's mother's house, where even then, in that moment, a group of disciples were praying for him. So a servant girl, Rhoda, is her name. She goes to answer the door and she sees that it's Peter and she's so excited and so happy to see him that she runs back into the house telling everybody Peter's at the door without remembering to open the door to let Peter in. That's the same word, the same joy that Rhoda felt in that moment. We see this joy in the two Marys that Matthew 28 tells us about. After the angel tells them that Jesus was alive, they run, scripture says, with joy to tell the other disciples. The disciples also felt that joy. We're told in Luke 24, when the resurrected Jesus came to them and invited them to, to touch his hands, touch my feet, to prove to them that he wasn't a ghost. This is the word that's used to describe the excitement that the 72 felt when they returned from their mission and reported all of their success to Jesus. The Apostle Paul even says that this joy is the stuff that comes from the Holy Spirit. It's deeper than happiness, joy is. We know that. It's more substantial than pleasure. It's this overwhelming, overtaking delight that you can look forward to and that you long to experience and that you can't wait to share with other people. Jesus, for the sake of the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Now, the cross, the other part of it. Uh, now, on this side of the empty tomb, the symbol of the cross does indeed have a loveliness to followers of Jesus. And, and it does provoke joy in our hearts, the hearts of those that know him. But what was the cross to Jesus? And to those of his day. The cross in Jesus' day was the symbol of one of the most horrendous, despicable forms of death ever conceived by humanity. In the Roman world, to die by crucifixion was to plumb the lowest depths of disgrace. F.F. Bruce says that it was a punishment for sub-men designed for barbarians and criminals of low degree and slaves. It was so terrible that Roman citizens were exempted from it. And painful, incredibly painful. Doctors have for years investigated what specific part of crucifixion actually caused 
a person to die. And, and they've concluded that there's actually many elements within crucifixion that could do it, from exposure to suffocation to blood clots to hypovolemic shock. And there's others, all of them agonizing to live through. The cross was the ultimate symbol of pain and, and disgrace and social rejection in Jesus' day. So we have joy and we have the cross. Within the confines of space and time, can I suggest to you that those two words do not in any way belong together? By any reasonable estimation, they should not be found within 10 miles of each other. And yet here they are in the very same sentence along with Jesus. Jesus, for the sake of the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. What sort of notion, what sort of reality could bring those things together for Jesus? Where might Jesus ever find joy in the proximity of the cross. Through the ages, uh, many options have been suggested. Um, for example, Jesus could have found joy in the thought of completing his mission of redeeming the world. Uh, that was Jesus' accomplishment, and no doubt, what a tremendous accomplishment it was. Uh, no one else had even come close to achieving it. Certainly, accomplishing that would put Jesus in a class by himself, if he wasn't already in a class by himself, which he was. So was this Jesus' source of joy, the joy set before him as he endured the cross, to know that he has completed this mission? Maybe it was the joy of, of seeing God the Father, the joy of, of once again being able to have the sort of closeness and companionship that they had had before they were separated for 33 or so earth years. Anyone who's been a part from a loved one for even a fraction of that time can understand the joy involved in the prospect of a reunion like that. Um, maybe it was the joy of being free from the, the trials and the, the limitations and the temptations of this sin-filled world. Uh, you and I well know how tiring it is for us to deal with the devil and, and the effects of sin's curse around us. And I'm confident that we don't feel the tension anywhere nearly as sharply as as Jesus did. Could it be simply the joy that comes in the completion of a noble task? I mean, certainly any task accomplished in the name of virtue is worthy of, of joy, legitimate joy. Or is it the joy of receiving the honor of sitting at the right hand of God? Maybe, maybe Jesus found the joy in the prospect of just being done being human, you know? Uh, the reason I wonder about that one is, I, I think uh, of that time, all the synoptics tell us about it, uh, when the man brings his sick son to the disciples for healing, and, and they couldn't do it, remember? And they bumped the case up <laughs> to Jesus. And uh, in Jesus, in, in what sure seems to me like a moment of honest and yet sinless frustration, he says something like, you faithless people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? To me, that sounds a little like a pastor who maybe needs to consider a new appointment. You know? Uh, 
Is there room in, in Jesus' humanity for him to be disappointed and even frustrated enough to take some joy in the prospect of a new appointment, of moving on? You know, I think it's likely that all of these play at least some part in it. Uh, I think all these factors in varying degrees contribute to Jesus' joy here. But is there something else? Is there a source of joy for Jesus that is more profound and alive than any of these? I don't know about you, but it helps me to think of it in personal terms. Um, If you would, try, try to think of what was absolutely the hardest thing God has ever asked you to do. The hardest thing. What what was that? You have that in your mind? The hardest thing he's ever asked you to do. Now, when you look at it from where you were at that time, maybe you didn't understand all the ramifications of it at the moment that he asked. Maybe you did. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you didn't agree to it in the moment that he asked. Maybe it took some time for you to be convinced. Uh, You had to, you know, walk around the barn with God a couple times talking about it. Uh, Maybe more than a couple times. Maybe you tried to bargain with God a little bit before you agreed to do it. You had to realize that God doesn't bargain. (laughs) What was it? What was the hardest thing God's ever asked you to do? Maybe God asked you to forgive somebody. Uh, very specific somebody. Maybe it's somebody who hurts you. Maybe he asked you to express love to someone who had not in any way been loving to you. Maybe it was about breaking off a relationship that you very much wanted to be in, but, but you knew that God didn't want you in. Maybe it involved saying yes to the call of ministry. Maybe it was about leaving behind some measure of earthly security. Maybe you had to leave a a good job or a nice house or a a big income, something like that. And begin a new chapter of following God in very practical faith. Maybe the hardest thing God's ever asked you to do was to come to seminary. Maybe it was giving up those big exciting plans that, that you had for your future. Maybe it involved leaving people you love to go to the other side of the world, either for a time, or maybe for a long time, or maybe for a lifetime. Think of the hardest thing God has ever asked you to do. In the end, you did it. Why? Why'd you do it? Now, I realize there's lots of contributing factors. Uh, they're, They're... usually are. But you know, in the end, I'll bet the biggest reason you did it, maybe the only reason you did it, was because you knew it was God's will for you and that you would please him by doing it. You did what God asked you to do because sooner or later you were able to look not at the task, but through the task You were able to see through it, whatever it was, however unpleasant it either seemed or or really was in the moment. You were able to look not just at it, but through it and see on the other side of it the approval, the loving smile of the face of God the Father. 
In the end, you did what he asked for the love of God. You know, there are certain tasks in life that we do for no other reason than to be obedient to and so to please the heart of God. Now, there are, there are ancillary uh, benefits. Sometimes we can't see them, and other times we can. Uh, in Jesus' case, he understood. Uh, he could see the benefits of his going to the cross. Uh, for example, Jesus knew that the cross was the pathway of his returning to the side and to that intimate company of his Father in heaven. Both of those things he missed so much. The cross for him was, was his on-ramp to the life that he knew before the incarnation. That was a benefit. Jesus knew the cross would take him away from these sin-soaked struggles of our earth, which was, I would think, a very appealing thought to him. I mean, let's be honest. Who among us does not look forward to leaving those things behind? Uh, at least at times. Just before finals is a great time for that to happen. That would be a great time to die right before. You know, just about every time I agree to do something difficult, like preaching at the seminary chapel, uh, I pray a little sideways prayer just about every day before that says, Lord, if you are planning to take me home to glory anytime soon, go ahead and do it now. Go ahead and do it now. Before I have to do this. Leaving behind the struggles of earth. That was an ancillary benefit of the cross. What else? Well, you know, Jesus knew that his work on the cross meant untold blessings for the whole earth. He knew that. He knew his suffering would create the way of redemption for the world. For all creation. And for every person who would believe. Jesus knew his suffering would take away your need and my need to suffer like he did. He knew that his suffering would save us in so many ways. And so there was tremendous love involved in Jesus' work on the cross. Sacrificial love for you and for me and for every person of our world. For all the creation. It's a love that's deeper than we can comprehend. It's a love that is surely, as, as hymn writers have said, vast and unmeasured and boundless and free. It's an ocean filled with blessing. It's a heaven of heavens, a heaven sweet of rest. It's a love that's all compassion and pure and unbounded. It, it's a love that's nothing less than amazing. A love that leaves us wondering how it could be that, that thou, my God, would die for me. There most certainly was a joy in Jesus' heart about what his death and what his resurrection would do for us and for our world. And yet, as much as Jesus loved us on the cross, I think it's important to remember that he loved his heavenly father even more. And that just as it was the father's love for us that sent Jesus to earth... So was it Jesus' love for his father that ultimately sent him to the cross. I bring this up because it's easy for us to become rather egocentric when talking about Jesus' love for us. As profound as it is, being sort of the, the ultimate love 
and joy of Jesus. We're wise to remember that there is an even greater love at work here. And that is the love that the Father, Son, and Spirit share together. Ultimately, it was for the sake of the joy of this selfless, self-giving love, the love that Jesus has for God the Father, that he endured the cross. And Jesus' joy in that journey was grounded in that love, you see. That's what he saw as he looked through the task before him, as he looked through the pain and the shame and the disgrace of the cross, he saw the pleasure of his father. The cross was one of those things that can only be explained by love for God. It's the same sort of love that sent Abraham to the mountain with Isaac and a knife. It's the same sort of love that sent Moses into the desert with a tribe of whiny, disobedient people. You know? Did Abraham love Isaac? Yes, but he loved God more. Did Moses love the Israelites? Oh, absolutely. But he loved God more. Did Jesus love us on the cross? With all his heart. But he loved God his Father even more. Of course, the, the tremendous news of all this is that this love that we see in Jesus for his Father is the very same love that God longs to share with us. It's a love that he wants to work out in us and, and not just in one direction uh, from him to us. You know, he wants to pour this sort of love into us so that we can love him as completely as Jesus does. This is really the heart of Jesus' prayer for us in John 17. That we could experience this sort of profound self-giving unity, not just with one another, but actually joining in the unity of God the Father and Christ the Son, such that just as the Father and the Son are unified one with another, so might we be unified with them, bonded together by this love that, that moves us, that motivates us with an ever-growing urgency to do and an ever-deepening joy in doing just what God asks. Even the crazy sounding things. You know, even the things for which we see no benefit. Even the things that would seem impossible. Even those things that might be in some ways excruciatingly painful. Even those things involving the cross. Whatever cross God might ask you and me to carry. We can, like Jesus, endure of the joy of being in love with God. And so here is where the heart and the cross collide, you see. There are things that people only do for the sake of the joy of love. Jesus for the sake of the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Father, in these days to come, particularly in these days 
of Lent. May we all learn something from Jesus of the meaning of the words of the psalmist. I take joy in doing your will, O God. In Jesus' name.